Welcome to the TerraWords Space Podcast. This is Aravind. In this podcast, I speak to entrepreneurs, innovators, and thought leaders in an attempt to demystify Earth observation, satellite data, and all its applications. Today, I'm speaking with Brad Bode, CTO and CIO at Atlas Space Operations, which is a ground software as a service company working with several Earth observation companies. Ground segment is an area of the space industry which really doesn't get a lot of attention, despite the fact that it is a bridge between data acquired in space and data collected on Earth. So I had Brad on the podcast to discuss the state of ground segment and the impact on EO sector. In this episode, Brad and I talk about what Atlas Space Operations does, why ground segment is so underappreciated, how EO companies work with ground segment, the difference between ground station as a service and ground software as a service, the entry of Microsoft and Amazon into the space, and what it means, and more. And now I bring you Brad Bode. Hi, Brad. Thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you, Aravind. Brilliant. Let's get started. What's your story and how did you end up doing what you're doing now? Great. The story goes back to roughly 2015, if you want to talk about the inception of the company, Atlas Space Operations. Um, But really, the story goes back to about 2005 when my co-founder and I met at Northrop Grumman. We were uh, working on a... I was working on research and development to take research money, build something that could then transition into a production environment in one of the um, closed or classified programs. So I had built this mission management tool and scheduling tool that my later co-founder saw and liked it a lot and wanted to use it for a satellite program that was in another building somewhere. They had run into problems that the software that Raytheon um, had built met all the requirements, but none of the end users actually liked it. Um, so it was a very expensive piece of software, and it was, it was again, checked all the requirement boxes. But if you've done big aerospace, you might know that even though things check the requirements, it doesn't mean that they're always usable or functioning the way that they should, because requirements can be written vague, and then the solution can be, um, you know, not optimal. So he brought me in to apply my software. We did that. And in the lifespan of using it on that program for scheduling and talking to the Air Force Satellite Control Network, um, it cost about 300000 versus millions for the software that I replaced. So that was a screaming success in many ways. And, um, you know, we... We both, he left Northrop Grumman, uh, you know, has started another company that does, does consulting. And then I left after, at about 2011, 12, to help start the software side of an, what would now be called an IoT company. It monitored oil and gas and uh, mining. And uh, then I stuck there for about two years, but then I wanted to own a company. So Sean and I started talking about what we could do. And the thing that always came back up was how difficult it was to integrate with ground stations and how technology today is much better and we can leverage the cloud to do it. So at the time in 2015, there was really no one talking about this and the term ground station as a service didn't exist. Um, So my goal was to be the first ground station as a service provider, right? Station as a service, 
again, that term didn't exist, but it's what we were doing because we did a very early test with digitizing RF with Kratos and moving the data into the cloud. That test um, and processing the data in the cloud, not at the ground site. So there was just a digitizer at the ground site. Once we did that test, it was proof that we could orchestrate the equipment. You know, after I had written some software, take a pass, we used NOAA. Um, NOAA actually agreed to do the test with us and they downlinked some data and we delivered it to them and validated it. That helped us get a contract with NOAA to build a ground station in Ghana. So we built that ground station in Ghana. Um, NOAA started using it. It was built for them. And that was really our first customer. It allowed us to go ahead and start showing that we could actually do what we say we were going to do, which was to integrate a ground station into the cloud and deliver data to our customers in a timely manner. Now, that's really phase one of the company, and we were focused on capturing the data pipeline. So 2015, I don't know how many passes a day or a week we were doing. I think now we do about 2,000 passes a week. So a lot of data moves through our antennas, and now we have 13. Um, we can talk more about in integrating other antenna providers. We actually own um, directly eight and have integrated other third parties to make it 13. Um, and then finally, we'll talk about AWS a little bit later. But the, the, the end goal was not just to own the data pipeline. The end goal goes well beyond that. And as we talk, we'll get more into that. So ground station as a service is what the industry um, landed on right around 2020. And that term is a little bit overloaded. And we could talk about that too. Yeah, we're going to talk about a lot of things that uh, you had mentioned. Can you give an overview of what Atlas Space Operations does for those who don't know? So, you know, we start from there and then we can dig deeper into some of the topics that you talked about. So we provide ground software as a service for satellite operators. So a satellite operator comes to us and says, we need to downlink data from our satellite. It doesn't matter if it's an Earth Observer or a test satellite, SAR, it, it makes no difference. And we need you know X amount of minutes per day. We run some simulations to make sure we can deliver on those minutes. And we provide a contract that says we guarantee you these number of minutes with this amount of latency across you know, the, the number of antennas that you're contracted for. So in short, we are your access to space. Now it goes beyond that because it's one thing to deliver access to space through antennas, but it's another to actually provide features and services on top of that access because you can make it really easy or really difficult to get your data from your satellite. And traditionally in this space, it's been very difficult. So providing features on top of that means what is the biggest point of friction for our customers? Now, in 2015, a lot of um, satellite operators or satellite companies were actually building their own ground stations still. And if they weren't building their own ground stations, which is extremely expensive and time-consuming, and it means you need to stand up a whole crew and a whole team that needs to understand how to build a ground station, where to put them, and connecting it to the cloud, etc., 
And if they weren't building their own, they were contracting with likely KSAT or one other, maybe SSC, to um, get their data delivered to them. Now, the way that it was traditionally done was you would, you would stand up a rack of hardware, and it's still done today this way in a lot of places. You would take a rack of hardware, might be a $100,000 rack of hardware, and you would deliver it to every location on the globe where there was an antenna you were going to downlink to. Now, that struck me as very, very inefficient because everyone was delivering a very similar rack of hardware and spending the same money. Um, keep in mind, KSAT real-time Earth didn't exist at this time in 2015. So you were responsible for understanding and orchestrating your hardware at each ground site. And you were responsible for the networking and the software that went into that. Now, that struck me very early on as extremely um, expensive for each customer to develop when it was the same thing. So we decided to put a layer in front of all of that. This was in 2015, where the software on our end orchestrates the hardware that we own. You don't actually touch the hardware at the ground site. You don't have access to it. Your only access is in the cloud. Now, there's two ways to access information from a ground site. One is through an API that delivers, that allows you to ask for time on that antenna and delivers streaming metrics. Now, in 2015, no one was streaming metrics. We were the first to stream metrics with regard to what is the hardware doing. Is it the heart? Do, do you actually have carrier and symbol lock on your satellite? Is the antenna actually steering? Now, this information was traditionally not available to you in real time. We made it that way in 2015. Now, there's a couple others who do it, but that data is valuable. So we'll come back to that. Um, on top of that, then you need to be able to stream the data for TTNC. That's telemetry and commanding, right? You need access to the modem in some fashion to actually send data up, tell the satellite what to do and get data down, receive your payload back. Uh, we created a piece of software in the cloud that the customers connect to. So it's one entry point in the cloud. So your networking just got a lot simpler. You don't actually have to deliver hardware to every site because it's our hardware that we're interfacing with. You don't actually have to orchestrate all the equipment at the site because we orchestrate it. And you don't have to manage complex networking rules to get um, your connection to go all the way to each of the 16 global ground sites you might be using. We manage that because there is one entry point in the cloud. So that one entry point is called the Freedom Pass server. And within the Freedom Pass server, you use a token to authenticate with it to tell it what you want to do. And then when your pass is up, the connection is opened to the ground site and provided to you. So then you can say, you can send in your commands and you can receive the data back. Now, one thing that's really important here is because we control the data flow in and out, we can have very different hardware at every one of our ground sites. And our customers don't have to be aware at all of what hardware is being used at the ground sites. I know this doesn't sound necessarily um, 
novel to someone who might be in modern software design. That's an abstraction. However, traditionally, if you were delivering hardware to each ground site, you were writing your code to talk to specific sets of hardware. So the data coming out was specific to Kratos, Kratos, let's say, um, or Emergent. Those are two modem providers. That data coming out looks a certain way. It has what's called headers wrapped around it that have a specific format specific to that company. So now if a company comes to uh, Atlas and says, hey, look, I already talked Kratos and I don't want to change, but 60% of your ground sites use Emergent. Well, we don't want the expense of them delivering us hardware to deploy at every one of our ground sites. That's off the table. That's no good for anyone. So what we do is we actually translate the data live as it's coming out of our system in the Freedom Pass server in the cloud. We, we reformat it to the format that they expect. So that allows us to integrate with legacy providers or legacy uh, systems, much like the government. So if you know anything about the government, they move fairly slowly in terms of updating their systems. And all they want is to the least modification possible. So that supports them. Or another customer that comes to us and says, hey, look, you know, a commercial company that's doing EO might say, um, we're came, we came to you late and we did all of our integration already with uh, emergent modems. And we'll say, fine, you can still use any one of our sites because we will translate it for you. Um, this is unique in the industry because, again, typically you are interfacing with a very specific set of hardware. Like if you take some of our um, competimates, I guess you could call them, um, they use standard sets of hardware. And you're always going to get that hardware. So if you didn't test with that hardware, um, you, you don't really have much of a choice when you go to them. If you want to buy the Cadillac service, you know, the high-end service, that's typically um, deploying your own hardware at some of these ground sites. And again, that costs a lot more money. So the Freedom Pass server and the cloud sit between all of our ground sites and our customers and allow them to connect to one entry point no matter where on the globe it is. And that includes Amazon Ground Station, which we can touch on a little bit more later and the significance of that. So that was a lot to cover. Yeah, I think that's uh, that was a great overview. Um, I wanted to dig deep into Earth Observation because obviously I think a lot of your customers will probably tend to be from Earth Observation and this podcast is specifically aimed at, um, at the Earth Observation sector. So I wanted to ask, so what does the status quo in Earth Observation look look like? And I'm, I'm curious as well, how does how does how do things happen today in Earth Observation? Could you walk us through the journey of, you know, a use case of, how things work uh, with respect to ground system, because I wanted to kind of get an overview of how things work, and then we can get into, you know, what what you're offering there. Well, one thing is, almost universally, satellite operators don't come to the ground providers early enough. So I want to stress that. It can save you a lot of time and money, Earth Observer or otherwise, if you reach out sooner. I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, Satellite radios that you choose when you're building your spacecraft, they might sound good on paper, but they might not have been integrated with the hardware that's out there 
and they might not be shown to be compatible with the hardware that's out there, meaning the modems that are at the bulk of the ground sites globally. There's probably more ground sites that use Kratos and Emergent than anything else. Maybe um, it's possible that in Europe it's, it's a provider called Zodiac Systems, and that's Cortex. And if you haven't done your testing with one of those three or the, the, the one that will be used at the ground site, you may run into some risks or some last-minute changes when you go to your ground provider late. Now, we've seen this happen where satellites have been on orbit and did not do a proper compatibility test, and they lost their satellite. So I want to stress that coming sooner, identifying your ground provider and uh, working with them to provide you a list of satellite radios that are very compatible and proven to be compatible, that can save you a lot of time and effort later because trust the ground providers that they know better what is going to work from ground to space. Now, if if a provider cannot deliver you a list of radios that have been verified to work with the hardware they own, then go to another provider because that means they're not doing their job. Um, so what is the, 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 the EO? So I, I wanted to give that caveat first. What is the, um, what does the process look like? Well, like I said, come to us sooner, but Whenever you do come to us, the first step is to determine, you know, can, are we compatible with what you're designing? And the likely answer is yes. I don't think we've turned anyone away at this point. Um, then we determine what do you need? How many minutes a day are you looking for to actually achieve your goals, to achieve your latency numbers, etc. Um, in the beginning stages, uh, a test satellite you know, typically when you're trying to prove a new sensor or the validity of the data, you go as uh, as least expensive as possible so that you can uh, prove your business model and that your sensor works. So you might only need, you know, six passes a day at one ground site. And that's pretty easy right at the beginning. However, if you're only at one ground site, your latency isn't going to be that great. So you might need to have uh, three ground sites to achieve some of the goals that you have so that you do a collect over a region of interest, downlink that data, do another collect, downlink that data, do another collect, downlink that data. And so it really depends on the goals that you have in terms of your sensor and the latency requirements. But we will work with you to figure out which sites are optimal for what you're looking for. And we will generate a report that tells you all sorts of metrics about how many minutes a day we can guarantee you, what the latency between downlinks will be, um, the uh, total number of minutes across a month, et cetera. And then that contract, um, that forms the basis for the contract to say how much it will cost you. The most important thing here, in, if you're doing earth observing and you're trying to generate revenue, profit, off of the data, you need a business model that is predictable. And if you have requirements that might be um, flexible, or, or let's say the cost shifts one month to the next, that doesn't help you as an earth observer. And it doesn't help you close your business model. 
you need predictable costs so that that business model has enough fidelity to show that you can launch 10 more satellites and actually generate a profit from it. Then, of course, there's licensing, which can take time. And I want to put that as another caveat. Do not underestimate how long it can take to get the license to uplink or downlink with your spacecraft. It can take anywhere from one month to a year, depending on the location. So coming to us early, a ground provider early, can alleviate a lot of problems, um, both in the licensing side and the technical gaps. So I have a question. When do usually then Earth Observation companies think about the ground segment? Is it too late? What is too late? Or what is the ideal time? The ideal time is before you've designed and locked your spacecraft. Honestly, before you decide which satellite radio goes in your spacecraft. You you talk to a provider that you're interested in using um, and make sure that that satellite radio works with them. Because if there's another satellite radio that has been proven to work and meets your needs, use the one that's proven to work. Don't take the cheaper, and even then, I would say, don't take the cheaper, riskier one. Because you cannot change a spacecraft once it's in space. Your design is of the utmost importance here. And getting the ground in the loop early, it costs you nothing to do that. You can call us and we'll guide you. Because it, again, it, we are here to bring value so that you choose us in the end. And that back and forth, just asking a few questions every now and then, will save you time and money in the long run. So before you choose the satellite radio would be the correct time. That's the ideal time. Too late, let's look at the other end of this. Mm -hmm. Too late is we've had people come to us a month before launch. So that's too late. You can get integrated. We integrated um, a company just recently in a month and they launched and everything, you know, worked great on our end, right? No problem. It's rare to do that and extremely risky. You need to buy down risk by addressing issues early, not late. And the reason that company came to us late was because they were having problems with their other provider. Okay. So it is possible but it is certainly not ideal because you run into too many risks. Fair enough. Um, so I'm curious, why do people, why does it happen? Is it because of the fact that the ground segment is one of the most, let's say, underappreciated and uh, misunderstood segments of the space industry? Is that the reason that nobody talks about it? Because, you know, everybody's, you know, talking about the satellite, the sensor, uh, or the data itself. Is that the reason? Yes, I think so. I think, it, I, I think it's... There's multiple reasons. One, money. If you're going to pour your money into something, where should you pour it into? Your sensor and your spacecraft. That that makes sense intuitively when you're building a spacecraft, right? Um, two, it's we are now in a generation that the bulk of people working on this have had cell phones for 20 years. And cell phones just work no matter where you go, right? They connect to different antennas all over the globe. And we've, we've become accustomed to this idea that, well, if it's just a data stream, then it should just work. It should be pretty easy to integrate with. And the reality couldn't be any further from the truth. Um, we have a process for onboarding our customers that is methodical, and it has a user interface 
that allows you to step through the process of onboarding. You can see where you're at, you can see the successes you had, and each one of those steps is to de-risk all of the different things that can go wrong. Um, we are the only one in the industry that has that, but again, we're really a software company who happens to own hardware. And other companies are infrastructure companies that are not software companies. So making it easier is our goal, but let's not make the mistake in saying that um, you can treat it like your cell phone where you just walk around and you make connections. That type of interconnectedness just isn't there yet. And it's going to be a long time coming until we can do something like this. Um, another thing is, I would say that, you know, aerospace people are all brilliant people and they really like to do things on their own. They, they sometimes so much that they will reinvent the wheel and code something that's already been coded because they want to do it better. And maybe they can do it better, but time and money is always important because it can make or break a business model. If you have unlimited money, maybe you will do it better. If you have unlimited time, maybe you will do it better. But the reality is neither one of those is ever true. So you have to lean on the ground provider uh, to help you in this process. And uh, I think that, you know, that covers the main reasons why this happens. Um, it's the, the lack of appreciation for the complexity of the ground station uh, and what it takes to integrate. All right. Makes sense. Um, I want to move on to a couple of terms that you've used in the conversation so far. And I want you, want you to, you know, ask the, tell the differentiation, difference between ground station as a service and ground software as a service. Because ground station as a service, as you mentioned, has been around uh, for a while, and that's kind of what people associate with. And at Atlas, you talk a lot about ground software as a service. So what really is the difference between the two? Great, great question. Um, so ground station as a service, like I said, is a term that is a little bit overloaded. And what do I mean by that? Um, there are companies saying they're a ground station as a service that still would expect you to deliver your hardware to their ground site and you plug in an RF cable into your stack of hardware and they switch the RF from yours to someone else's back to yours as necessary. There's nothing wrong with that business model, but that's not software. So ground station as a service is really infrastructure as a service. You are getting some infrastructure. Now, I gave one example of delivering hardware. Another example would be digitized RF into the cloud. That would be the AWS business model. That's still infrastructure as a service because you're still responsible for dealing with that high data rate digitized RF once it enters the cloud. And there's, again, nothing wrong with that. That's still ground station as a service. It's infrastructure as a service. Then there are other companies. Take Viasat. Viasat will deliver um, the means to deploy your software in a virtual environment at their ground site. And they can also do a lot of the processing for you to lower the data that comes into the cloud to make it less. Like digitized RF is massive amounts of data. And only AWS or Microsoft can do that at their data centers because of the, the 10 gigabit connections they have. Now, a company like ours or Viasat, we don't have 
uh, a 10 gigabit connection. So we have to process some of that data to bring it into the cloud rapidly because our locations are locations that don't even have 10 gigabit. You'd have to run fiber cable great distances and at a great cost to do that. So, you know, a location like Ghana, internet's very expensive there as it is, or Guam, or Tahiti, where we have antennas. So, as I said, there I've already mentioned two models, deploy the hardware, digitize the RF, then that third model of perform some computation on the data to reduce it, to get it to the cloud. Those are really the three main models that are ground station as a service. But as you can see, they're all different. So each one of those makes some assumptions about, well, you could easily make some assumption, assumptions about what you have to do in order to integrate. And you might be wrong. So you might be thinking, oh, I'm just going to get a data feed. Well, that's not always true, depending on who you go to. You might have to deliver a rack of hardware and have to spend $100,000 that you weren't modeling for. So understanding which model you're entering into is really important. Now, let's say you, in order to, to make your system work with the latency you want, you have to integrate two providers. And what if those two providers are two totally different mechanisms for integration? One, you have to deliver hardware. Another, you get digitized RF. So now your software team and networking team actually has to manage both of those ground station as a service, infrastructure as a service methods. And that's more expensive to you. So Atlas Space Operations, ground software as a service, we call it that because what we do is we provide a layer on top of our antennas and third-party antennas in order to make it all look the same no matter which provider you are using. So to you, when you integrate with us, you get all of our antennas, our third-party provider antennas, which includes all of AWS antennas. And you don't have to actually manage any of the orchestration in the cloud you just get a data feed or you get the data delivered directly into your S3 bucket. Now, the significance of that is it cuts down on cost for you to integrate into our system or one system that allows you access to more antennas. Now, as the year progresses this year, we'll be integrating other providers and be that software layer on top of the infrastructure to orchestrate it all, right? So ground Ground software as a service is effectively a software layer that makes everything accessible. But then on top of that, we add features that are only available if you are a software company. Now we release about four different software updates a week in our production environment. Only a software company could do that. We also add features. I'll give you one. Um, there's a feature called Insights. Insights takes a look at all the data coming out of the hardware at the ground sites. It looks at the metrics that we've collected. Now, we have billions of metrics that we've collected over the last seven years. But it looks at those metrics streaming out of the hardware to make sure that the actual pass was success successful or if it was a failure, or if there's some warnings. So given our experience as ground operators, 
We scan the data and you'll see in the user interface, warning, success, failure. And it'll tell you what succeeded, what's a warning, and if there's any failures. That's going to tell you right away if there was likely a problem from the ground perspective of your pass, rather than you having to try to figure out what's wrong with the ground systems. As a satellite operator, you want to be responsible for the data coming off your spacecraft. The last thing you want to do is also be a ground systems expert. So we're here with software to help you breathe easy and de-risk because we're going to examine all the data coming off of there and tell you where it went wrong or right. Now, once the data hits you and it's your spacecraft data, you have to be responsible for your actual spacecraft data. However, our job is 100% to provide the best analytics and tools to determine whether or not the link to space closed, the pipeline to space closed, as I mentioned before. Makes sense. So we've seen the entry of some big tech companies into the space industry, specifically Microsoft and Amazon Web Services. What does it mean for the ground segment? Right. So if you take a look at AWS and Microsoft, I mean, obviously they have grander visions and the U.S. government is really the one driving a lot of the, the desire for upgrading their systems. But the U.S. government moves slow um, because it's just the way it works. AWS and Microsoft, if you just look at their business models, um, the, the biggest earner in AWS or Amazon is AWS. It's the bulk of their revenue. So to expand that, everyone sees that the future of space data is really important and data coming from space, satellites. And that requires a lot of processing. So where does the bulk of the processing happen today? It happens in the cloud. And the goal of Amazon and Microsoft is to capture that data processing in their cloud and to provide an ecosystem that allows customers to be able to work with their data faster, get it into AWS faster, and do data fusion, data processing, um, analytics, et cetera, all using AWS or Microsoft servers. Now, from a business model, it makes perfect sense, right? So it doesn't make sense. What doesn't make sense is for Microsoft and AWS to do something like what we do at Atlas. That is a more fine-grained business model where we are basically a concierge service for satellite operators, right? And AWS and Microsoft would have to stand up small companies within them to perform that. And they don't have a track record of doing something like this. Amazon has a track record of building an ecosystem and, and giving you infrastructure, not necessarily taking over an entire managed service. You know, you take Rackspace. Rackspace is a company that makes working with Amazon easier for small businesses. And they're a multi-billion dollar company. That's precisely what we do. We are a managed service company that takes over dealing with the ground segment for small and large satellite companies. So the reason they're entering in, into it is just for data purposes. They need the data processed in their cloud. And as you, if you look at it, 
that's going to extend to space at some point with Space Relay or AWS in space. You know, AWS announced that they, I forgot what they did, something with relation to um, running computing in space. Now, that'll obviously happen, but you still need the software to tie all of that together globally. And that's where we fall in. We're going to continue to expand our software offering and um, offering capability on top of the infrastructure. And at Atlas, you've partnered with AWS, correct? What does this partnership entail? Correct. So um, we technically, I'm not allowed to say partner. Um, that's just the, you know, the way they work. We are a SPP-approved provider or reseller of Amazon Ground Station. So what does that mean? That means that Amazon came in, worked with us to validate our architecture that it meets best practices. Um, we worked with our security experts, uh, which we get audited from an external provider uh, to make sure that we are third-party audited and uh, still hold our NIST 180.171 accreditation. Right Now, that's very important because it's hard to get. That means our architecture has been validated by not only a third party, but AWS itself. So in order to be a reseller of Amazon Ground Station, you need to be able to offer their product in the best light and to fully understand it and to have people on staff that have certifications in Amazon architectures. And we've done all that. What we've also done is abstracted away the need to understand Amazon. You get a data feed from our system over a socket if it's real time, or you get the data dumped into your S3 bucket, and then you interact with our API otherwise. All the orchestration of Amazon Ground Station occurs behind that API, which means you have to spend less money and less time learning that API. And the same goes for all of our other third-party providers. Right, so let's get back to Earth Observation. What do EO companies look for from the ground segment providers? What are some key metrics they look for? I'm guessing latency is one of them. What else? It's a great question. Um, one of those, it, and it really depends on the case uh, and what type of data you have. Um, but usually, Earth observation data is more valuable the sooner you can get it down from space, typically. Now, in that case, you know, even for NOAA, by the way, they... The, the quicker they can get it, the better, because they can work it into their weather models. Um, other companies, I think, require or, or would desire the lowest latency possible. You know, obviously, zero latency isn't possible. But I had one company tell me, look, I don't care about no latency. What I care about is predictable latency. And so that's an important thing. How long will it take me to get the data down from space? And the way to augment that is to have frequent touch points on the ground until we have space relay in the far future. The more frequently you can send the data back down to the ground, the better. So that means more global antennas. And that, if you look at the antenna maps for all of the ground providers, not one of them has the total solution if you want to talk about frequent downlinks. So coming to a company like Atlas, you can 
get more antennas and more frequent touch points with the ground because we've integrated other providers. So that, that latency is really important. Well, security is another important aspect. And, you know, we had one customer who we had to jump through some hoops because they sell data to NOAA. Uh, NOAA wanted to ensure that if they used our ground station, uh, that the data had integrity. So we had to go back and sh show them our third-party auditing, that we'd already passed this with NOAA, and that all worked out. But it's not without those high security standards that you can sell to some government agencies. Now, another thing to consider is your CONOPS. Um, we look at customer behaviors on all of our systems. Some customers can schedule two weeks out or 10 days out and keep the visibilities or passes talking to their satellite that they scheduled 10 days ago. However, there are other customers, one which is an Earth observer, has frequent changes to their schedule because they want to tell their Earth observer, instead of looking at this, we just found a mother higher priority target, go look at this other thing. And they need frequent contact, but most importantly, they want to change at the last minute. So they might want to change an hour before the pass is actually supposed to occur or 13 hours. So on average, this one customer, Earth Observer, changes their schedule 14 hours out, roughly. Some providers won't let you do that without a major penalty. I, I believe the bulk of them. You know, a lot of them are first come, first served. You book the time you want. So that means if I can tolerate, um, if I can tolerate booking way early and my concept of operations allows for that, then I'm at an advantage to getting every pass I want. So it's a race to see who can book earlier. Now, if you are selling to the U.S. government and there's a war, you imagine how dynamic that is and changes are going to occur rapidly. So you might need to change in the last 24 hours. Now, other providers, if you want to cancel one pass in favor of another, they may charge you for that canceled pass in the last 24 hours or not even allow you to make a change. So this is where scheduling comes in. The scheduler has to be smart enough to balance the needs of all of the customers and not penalize them for the concept of operations that is important to them. This is why you need to determine your concept of operations early so that you can ask the right questions of the ground provider because you will be surprised at how different they can be and how penalizing a first-come, first-served schedule is. Okay, we're running out of time. So last question to wrap up. What is one thing people will be shocked to hear about the state of ground segment today? One thing they will be shocked to learn is, in many cases, the simplicity um, with which, well, I shouldn't even say simplicity. I should say that the pace at which that industry has evolved, it's, it's way behind the as-a-service world. So ground station as a service is nothing more than infrastructure as a service. And I think if, if you dive into it um, as someone doing modern software practices, you might be shocked to learn how it is still back in the late 90s, maybe even early 2000s. All right. Thanks, Brad. Thanks for being on the podcast.
This was very insightful. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you.